This is Owen Singer-Jones and you are listening to the Coleman Had A Dream podcast. Hello and welcome to the latest Coleman Had A Dream podcast. Today we chat with Owen Tudor-Jones about a full range of topics. We talk about his early career at Puff Maddog and Bangor, moving on to Swansea, his injuries before moving on to Norwich, his little loan spells he had around and about the place, as well as moving up to the Misfits, as he called them, in Scotland. We also talk a little bit about his Wales career. We talk about um, the different managers he's worked under. He talked about working under Toshak, Speed and Coleman. So we talk about that, as well as his role in the media and his thoughts on the Welsh League. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Hello and welcome to the latest Coleman Had a Dream podcast. Um, I have been joined as always by Ruth here today. Morning. And a very special guest, Mr. Owen Tudor-Jones. Hello, how are you? Very good, thank you. Thanks for joining us. No problem. Um, so we wanted to start just by uh, talking about your early career. Started life in Poth Madog and then moved and played for Bangor yeah. before obviously moving down to Swansea. Um, tell us about your early football experiences and, and how you got into football as well as you know anyone who helped you develop. Uh, early football experiences, I think, like the majority of young boys, uh, young boys who want to become professional footballers, always had a ball in my hand going to school, um, on the streets, smashed a few windows, <laughs> got a bit of trouble, um, just always wanted to play football. And it took a little while for it to get going, actually. Um, I don't think the area that I lived in, uh, Bangor, necessarily helped in terms of opportunities and professional clubs nearby. And also probably growing up, not quite good enough to be snapped up by, was, I'm not even sure if it was academies uh, during those those days, but yeah. you know, professional clubs had trials with uh, Liverpool, Everton, Oldham, Chester, Wrexham, um, and nobody nobody snapped me up, if you like. So <laughs> just played with my local team, um, my Sabrin, and... And then went to Porth Maddog as a 15-year-old just for a little taste of men's football mm-hmm. uh, because physically I was I was taller than most of my age. Yeah. Um, had a short stint there before before moving to to Bangor and, and taking an opportunity there. Um, obviously, after after that moving down to Swansea, was it like an intimidating s- s- circumstance? Was it? You know, do you feel pressure on you moving down there when the club was obviously starting to make progress off the field after such a turbulent time beforehand? Yeah, it was it was different, really. I mean, I, I went for I went to Swansea almost as a twenty one year old, so twenty, just about to turn twenty one. Um, had had four, well, had had four years with Bangor, two good ones. First one was a good one. Fourth one was a very good one, uh, where, where I'd really progressed and 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 felt that I needed a new challenge. Yeah, and the opportunity to go to Swansea came about a trial. And it was a good dressing room. It really was. Big characters. Yeah. You know, even looking back now, uh, Gary Monk, Lee Trundle, Leon Britton, Andy Robinson, um, just just to name a few, uh, you know, Roberto Martinez. So it was an experienced dressing room of different people, different characters. So it was a bit strange, you know, to start with for, for just a boy from Bangor um, to, to move down and sign for this team. And initially, I fitted in no problem. Uh, worked my way into the team quite quickly. Yeah, Felt felt that I belonged, if you like. Uh, the, the problems would come a little bit later after the first season. Um, injuries, knee surgeries, a couple of those. Uh, broken ankle, uh, missed, missed a year and a half. And by the time I'd come back, 
Roberto Martinez was the manager, so I went from being my midfield partner uh, to, to being my to being my gaffer. Yeah, and unfortunately for the club, and unfortunately for me, because I'd missed a good chunk of that start, the players had developed so much under him. Um, I, I was playing catch up, and and unfortunately that gap was just too big. I mean, you you talked about it being uh, you know a great dressing room experience. Dressing room. What about it made it so enjoyable? It's it's really hard to pinpoint exactly what was good. Uh, big big characters, huge personalities, and ultimately it was just a, a good period in terms of the success that the club was having. The fact that they were that they were winning, they'd just been promoted. Um, future promotions were on the cards, and that just that creates a happy dressing room. Yeah, it creates a good environment, um, and sometimes managers, by luck or judgment, just seem to get the blend right. Um, I wanted to ask a little bit about that um, League One playoff final um, against Barnsley, Owain. Yeah. I mean, obviously that must have been a, a great moment, but a difficult moment as well, um, facing penalties and that sort of thing. Can you talk about that a little bit for us? Yeah, it, it was weird, really. It, it, it proves that in the football world, how things can move so fast. So you go from playing in the Welsh Premier League in front of a handful of people um, to then professional game, and you finish. I finished that first season at the Millennium Stadium in front of so many people, and almost you take it for granted. You know, I, I think back to that game quite often, really, and I think I, I get nervous thinking about it now <laughs> uh, as a thirty-three-year-old. As but at the time, I wasn't. It was just. Just another game, took it in my stride, um, played, and we played really well. Anybody who would have watched that game, we battered Barnsley. We had so many chances. A few, a few lads will name names and blame maybe Trunks for his, his missed chances. Um, but, but, I mean, you know, to, to go to penalties was, was an unfortunate way to, to end it. Um, you know, I've got, I've got good memories. I, I scored mine. Um, obviously, Bale, Bale missed his, yeah. uh, but we, we're, we're in agreement that we'll blame Tatey. Um, <laughs> I'd, I'd, I'd rather pick a fight with Tatey than Bale. I'd, I'd go. For yeah, it's, it was, it's, it's just the type of the type of experience that that you want. Really, you live for uh, that walk up. Taking a penalty has never been a huge issue for me. I, I almost enjoy that lonely walk. Where you've just got yourself, you've got your own um, frame of mind, you, the, the, the internal voices to battle with, um, and then it's just it's just one on one with a goalkeeper and, and hoping that you strike the ball well. Yeah, no, I, I went to that game and like, and I was sat at the end where the penalties were, and it was like you like you say, you absolutely battered Barnsley that day, and I went with a group of my mates who were Swansea fans, and it was just such a bizarre thing because it was one of those things when Bayo put the ball down. Everyone kind of turned and yeah. looked at each other like we're going to be fine here. Um, did you kind of get the? Yeah. Did you get the same kind of feeling yourself that you know do you, when you went to Pens? Do you think we've got enough good people around you, or is it just is it a total lottery? I guess in the with the pressure and everything. Uh, it's more than a lottery. You, you do look around and think, yeah, you can take a penalty. I, I I would honestly imagine that people would see me stepping up and maybe have a a bit of doubt. Um, you know, because I am so. So lanky um, that, it, that there's almost a perception that maybe he can't take a good penalty. Uh, but I would always be, you know, I'd always have a, a good bit of faith that, that I can strike the ball well enough, maybe send the keeper the wrong way. Um, but you do, so so you look around. That judgment maybe would have been placed on me, but you, you think the boys who took them trans, yeah, you, you you fancy him under pressure. 
Um, little Leon, I think he took penalties for Swansea for a little while, so you fancy him. Yeah. And Bale would have took penalties. Probably Tate was the one uh, where there would have been a few question marks. Um, but just disappointing, really. You know, we, we went from winning at the Millennium Stadium in the, in the LDV, um, an unbelievable day just a few weeks previous, to then the huge disappointment of, uh, of losing out. I've heard you talk about the the LDV before. Um, do you you know do you kind of properly rate that as one of the peaks of your career? That just that day and that moment. Yeah, I guess you have to. Um, you know, it's not. It's more than just the competition, and I, and I, I know that competition, especially with what, what's happened with Swansea since, almost is frowned upon or seen as a bit of a not a laughing but a, bit, a joke. Yeah. It, it, it is more than that. But it's just about the occasion. Any occasion that you get that many people to a stadium to watch watch your team play, and then the team is able to put on a performance and, and score iconic goals from the, for, for for the club, like the the Trans one, yeah. the first goal. That's a big day in the in the club's history, really. So brilliant day, um, you know. And and what we talk about more is is what happens after, uh, not just on the pitch with flags and uh, a bit of trouble for the likes of Tate and Trans. Um, <laughs> But but it's it's afterwards. It's the bus ride then back to Swansea. The nights out that follow. You, you, you know we we were stuck in our gangster type suits, uh, pinstripe, absolute rascal suits. I don't know how we got sucked into buying those. Um, but just wearing those suits with a big fat uh, pink ties. Um, you know, I was just wandering the streets. of wine untouchable. Really fell on top of the world. Yeah. So yeah, brilliant, brilliant memories. Obviously, you you talked a little earlier, Owen, about how after that season and then your knee your knee injury and, and trying to get back into um, the the first team and you know sort of rebuilding your your career um, yeah. and how how the Swans as as a club had sort of moved forward yet you hadn't. How what's the psychological effect of that and 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 how can perhaps we learn now how to support players that are in that position better than perhaps you were, you know, 10, 12 years ago. Yeah, it's it, it's a tough one because I almost wouldn't change it. I would change it if I was given a chance, but it's shaped me to become who I am today, whether that, that is building a bit of uh, mental strength, a bit of resilience, uh, being able to take hard knocks and realise that life, not just football, life in general is not always plain sailing. It's tough sometimes. Um, how, how can you how can you battle through that? And you know, I guess that's what that period proved for me. Um, those those eighteen months out. You, you know, I've I've referred to it before, where I spend a year out, have the operation over in America, where it's it's pretty much you know it's hit or miss. If this doesn't go to plan, I might have to retire at twenty two. Um, you know, these these are testing times, if you like, and then and then coming back and playing for the reserves. And, uh, the last game for the reserves before going back to the first team, I break my ankle. It, you know, and that's another almost six months out. So, really, really tough, tough periods, really. But, but I, I kind of am the type of personality to just take it in my stride. But in terms of helping people, it's a hard one because ultimately football is nowadays more than any. It's a business, and if you cannot produce on the pitch, then you're not you're not worth anything to the club. You're seen as almost a hindrance that. They're having to pay you a wage and you're either sitting on a physio table or, or you're out. My, my experiences at that time, my level dropped lower than, than what the other boys were. So, you know, we can, we can provide support, of course. We can provide advice 
to not you know get too down and, and clubs hopefully are moving in that direction of, of bringing in psychologists to not just to push their beliefs on players it's just an open door policy if you need that person then you can go in and speak and, and talk about anything people do seem to be more open to, to talking about their emotions and feelings now but ultimately if you're not on that pitch then then you're seen as uh, as useless not just to the club to the fans as well yeah. you know you guys as football fans it's all well and good you know as having this conversation now and, and you think actually there's more to a footballer than just mm. what he does on the pitch he's a, he's a person as well but as a football fan you just want to see your team doing well yeah. and you'll have your opinion on this guy who's not playing ah what a waste of time <laughs> get him out so we can bring someone in it's, it's just human nature yeah it's funny you should say that I remember I'm a Newcastle fan, as you can tell, obviously, behind me there. Um, and I remember that a lot of the same sort of stuff was said about Kieran Dyer all the time as well. Yeah. And he's obviously recently come out and said, you know, how difficult a time it was. And it's not until well after that, you you know, you, you pull your head out your ass a little bit and go, he's actually a human being as well as just someone you, you know, you hope can put a ball in the back of the net sort of thing on a Saturday afternoon. Yeah. Yeah, it's a good example, isn't it? Yeah. As soon as you get that tag of being injury prone. That tag will never yeah. leave you, I promise you. Having to retire, I promise you, it was like a weight off my shoulders. And, and you know, whether people believe me or not, it was genuinely that. Having, having that last injury and knowing, right, this is the last time I'm going to have to go through this. That I don't have to push myself physically and mentally to get back to a level that I knew I was nowhere near what I had once been. And that's frustrating. Yeah. So it was like, because I'd always go back home to, to Bangor a place where you hope that going home is your safe place, if you like. I'd almost find it the opposite, where you come from a, a small place, you know, relatively to, to other big cities, where everyone knows your business, everyone, the judgment is always out, and almost that feeling of people want you to fail, people don't want to see somebody succeed. That, that's my experience. Mm -hmm. Anybody, this is not just from me speaking, yeah. you, you know, anybody who goes away you know that you do sense a little bit of that um, a bit of jealousy really yeah. and I'd feel it if I'd go back to Bangor and I was on crutches and then you see almost uh, maybe it was a bit of paranoia I don't know but you know anybody who you came across in the pub or in a cafe or whatever it'd be not just oh how are you doing oh what's happened it was a uh, oh injured again are you <laughs> yeah. you know and, and that creates a little bit of uh, a chip on my own shoulder and you're thinking oh, I'm sick of this so by the end when I had to retire, I didn't have to have that conversation and be nice and explain the injury. It was almost, I felt comfortable enough to say, I injured again, had to retire, have you? Almost that I could just say, yeah, yeah, it happened. And I maybe, I wouldn't swear at them, you know, you almost, you have the conversation, but feel comfortable enough to tell them, listen, mate, you know, I, I'm fine with everything. I've, I've achieved you know, good things in my life yeah. as opposed to just being a hater, you know? No, absolutely. <laughs> I didn't want to swear there. Am I allowed to swear? Yeah, you're you allowed to do a bit. It's fine, don't worry. I, could I just wanted to tell him to piss off. <laughs> <laughs> I'll cut that back in, don't worry. <laughs> um, obviously, you talked about recovering from injury there, um, moving to Norwich after that. Yeah. I wasn't aware that after you'd moved to Norwich that your debut was in such a... I read the well. The word they used to describe it online was catastrophic game. 
Yeah, um, good description. Losing seven one to Colchester. What was it like? You know, you know, getting a move. Obviously, to even though we were in League One at the time, still a big club, and then obviously mm. walking into something like that where you lose seven one, and and obviously the the change through the season then to en- eventually getting promoted. You know, what what was that like walking into such what must have been a difficult dressing room to then getting promoted? Yeah, it was it was bizarre really to go in and and. Uh, you know, to have a decent pre-season where we played against good teams and got good results. And then you go into that opener against Colchester, who actually had nearest rivals at the time. It was almost seen as a derby. And just thinking, I think we just got a little bit above our station, really. You know, subconsciously. Right. Not at the time. It's not as if we thought this will be easy, but maybe we did. And just got... You know, I've spoke... I've, I've done... I've done a... I've had a conversation with Brian Gunn, the manager at the time, recently... And he'd say, for 10 minutes, we played really well. You know, we started pretty well, shifted the ball pretty well. And then what happened afterwards, just almost a blur. We're 5-0 down at half-time um, at home in front of a packed Carroll Road, 26,000 people. And he's just thinking, what has just happened? Yeah. Um, you know, the goalkeeper who was making his debut along with, you know, I was making my debut, I think it was five debutants. And the keeper just had a shocker. You know, Michael Theopoulos, an Australian guy, lovely fella, had an absolute shocker. And that was his one and only appearance for the club, certainly in the league. Um, And, you know, just almost that twist of fate, just to cap it all off, that Paul Lambert, the Colchester manager on that day, would then become Mm, our manager two weeks later. So his his opinion of the guys who played that day can't have been very high. so it was tough to start with trying to impress a guy who I would imagine thought that we were useless. Um, you know, he came in all guns blazing to start with, thinking that we were a soft squad, soft club, yeah. and he was probably right. And he just over time improved us immensely. Um, but but behind the scenes, I, I was struggling actually. I was struggling with with, with my knee. Um, you know, my one experience the, the game he the day he was announced as the Norwich manager we played against Brentford away he wasn't our gaffer but he was in the stand we could see him and uh, I remember we went 2-0 down uh, we were struggling we were poor and you, you know the usual two guys would take kickoffs so the striker pass it back to the midfield player which was me and then I'd maybe ping a ball and I remember pinging the ball and my leg just giving way my, my standing leg giving way just that's how my knee was really um, and then obviously w- you know, I'd have to carry that into then trying to train hard, impress a man, a new manager. Yeah. yeah, just just didn't go to plan really for me. You've, I mean, you mentioned Paul Lambert there, Owen. You've worked with some interesting managers when you think about it over the years. Who do you think had the most impact on you as a player and perhaps as a person as well? Yeah, it's a good, it's a good question. I've I've had a wide array, uh, huge variation of managers. So that would go from. Kenny Jacket as um, seen as like a British type manager um, you know doesn't get the credit he deserves now because perhaps what's happened since and the football played after he left but you know he's very good at what he did and he's also the first one who took a chance and, and gave me my first professional contract so you almost have a you almost create a little bond there you'll always have a place in my heart old Kenny yeah. um, Roberto has to be the best one in terms of what he did um, the football that we played and it was him it was all him how he did it I still, I'm still, i still not sure just training sessions so well thought out 
um, you know, to, to make sure that all the players had X amount of touches because on a Saturday he wanted players on the ball and ready to receive and build and build that. So in that respect, he was the best comfortably. Um, and then Paul, I would put Paul Lambert in the same bracket, even though he, he hardly played me. Um, but over time, we actually developed a good relationship uh, in that. Initially, he may have thought, no, this man, he's not for me, he's not going to play. I'd then go out on loan, away from the couple of spells at Yeovil, a spell at Brentford, to prove that I wasn't just happy to pick up my wages, that I, that I was willing to go out and play. And then when I came back, I'd train hard. Um, so we actually developed a good relationship. He was the best motivator that I have seen. Um, what, what's happened to him since hasn't quite gone to plan, but yeah. in that two years, two, three years at Norwich, he was brilliant, absolutely outstanding at just knowing. Some guys just have the aura where we would train sometimes and the level would be at a certain point. He would just walk out of the building and walk pitch side and the tempo would just increase um, tenfold. Just, just by standing there, yeah. and that is a very special skill, and and, and his his uh, his biggest his biggest skill probably. Is that what it what it's like in that dressing room when you know you you know you had a f- struggling with the first two weeks, like you said, and was it when he came in, it was more just his motivation and and, and that sort of thing that kind of managed to get everyone going, and obviously that probably helps to build a good bond amongst the players as well when you've gone from getting hammered seven one to eventually getting promoted through the year. Yeah, it's a, it, it was a huge factor. But he, he obviously has to be more than that. At the time, he had Ian Culverhouse as the assistant who would take the majority of training. So he'd put on good sessions and then Lambert would be the, the, the motivator to make sure that tempo was always good. And when the tempo is good in tough, hard sessions, you build up a fitness level. So the squad, the team ended up being fitter than anybody um, playing a new brand of football. He changed the formation slightly, which in the one... Other teams could not figure it out. Yeah. Just a diamond in midfield. But at the time, it was actually quite new. Um, so, yeah, he was, he was, he was outstanding. How, how can you go from a team languishing, having been beaten 7-1, they've just been relegated, uh, even though they were arguably the biggest club in the league, along with Leeds, um, to then change that mentality completely and go on a run? Because the run didn't really start properly until... November time I think Leeds must have had a huge huge gap between us and them and slowly but surely just kept plugging it away plugging away uh, ticking off the you know winning game after game closing the gap Um, it was an incredible two years to to witness just that change of momentum within the club and and although it is the players who do the business would not have been achievable without him as as the gaffer and after your time, obviously, in Norwich, you started kind of like moving around a lot. You talked about it there and obviously ended up going up to Scotland. Um, was that like, obviously, through your injuries, that were you sort of like hoping something had clicked somewhere else and you'd just kind of be able to get by it all? Or was it in a cynical way just, you know, I'm young enough that I still need to be earning money? Uh, probably a mixture of both, but I still had something to give. Otherwise, you know, people... I do joke that I was pulling the wool over managers' eyes and they kept giving me contracts, but you have to show something for that to be the case. Yeah. Um, you know, I've had injuries at Swansea, but the fact that I went to Swindon on loan and played, I think, 11, 12 consecutive games meant that Norwich signed me. And without those run of games, it wouldn't have happened. Um, Inverness was an interesting one because nobody ends up in Inverness by choice. 
uh, or nobody ends up at Inverness if you have options, you know, and that's with the greatest of respect to a lovely little club, beautiful part of the country, but the fact that it is so far up north, it, it just means you almost get a bunch of misfits. Yeah. Um, it's either young lads looking for a chance or, or more senior lads like myself at the time who are struggling with injuries and struggling for options, really. So then you have to back yourself and think, can I get myself in the shop window? Can I sign for these, play games, good platform, you know, Sky Sports show, a lot of Scottish football mm-hmm. games, chance to play at Ibrox Parkhead, um, Pitodri against Aberdeen. So you're almost backing yourself to play well for a season to move on somewhere else. Yeah. Um, but I ended up, well, the first season was just injuries, had another knee operation. Uh, but the second season at Inverness, was arguably my my favourite one. Looking back on my whole career, oh, really? just the, the the bunch of lads that we had, the misfits got together. Yeah, we we, we got together and just had a a really successful season for a club of that size, uh, who were just always punching above their weight to be in the division in the Premier League. And to finish, we ended up finishing fourth, but we were we were top of the league at one stage after beating Rangers at Brooks. We beat Aberdeen. When did the realization? Come on! What was the tipping point where you were ready to say, "Okay, I've I've battled these injuries enough. I've I've pushed on. Actually, I'm ready to move away from football. Not completely, obviously, given what you're doing now, but move away from playing football." What was there a point where you just thought, "Actually, enough's enough." There was a point where I knew enough was enough, and that was. Uh, not an incident. It was after that first year at Inverness where I had like, my fifth surgery, and I made a decision. Right, if it goes again, I'm gonna I'm gonna finish playing. So coming back from the fifth one, had that great season. Uh, moved on to Hibs because of a, on the back of a good season, and it was just always in the back of my mind. If it goes again, I, I'm gonna stop because the wages were dropping, my level was dropping. Mm-hmm. I was in pain every day. Um, it was just becoming such a grind to prepare and be ready for a training session, never mind a game. So, you know, in the meantime, I'd uh, had an unsuccessful period at Hibs, moved to Falkirk, and then the knee went again. So, but in the, in that space, I've always been one, uh, did a lot of interviews, started off at Swansea being the only Welsh speaker. Mm-hmm. So even when I wasn't playing, they would always want an interview with me, which was a pain in the ass at times. <laughs> Um, but looking back, it was important to, to almost create, a, you know, get to know people and be polite with people, do them a favour at the time. Um, and then as I was coming towards the end of playing, I made a few phone calls and just kind of explained, listen, I, my knee's gone again, uh, although I'm still with Falkirk at the time, I think I'm going to call it a day. Uh, would there be something in the pipeline for me just as a starting block? Um, and, and, and that's how those opportunities came about. And, and obviously... Without the Welsh language, I wouldn't have a job in, in this world. If I answered that question incorrectly, it's because the, the crackling came, so I guessed. <laughs> I just caught the last few words. So I just, I just like, like a true professional. <laughs> so obviously, moving, moving over to Wales, you've got your call-up. Um, how, how did you hear about it and how did it feel? And obviously, a uh, game against Luxembourg, a 2-0 victory. Mm. What are your memories of that? I wasn't ready. Um, that's, that's the honest truth. <laughs> is I wasn't playing for Swansea at the time. I'd had experiences prior um, where I'd met with John Toshak soon after signing for Swansea, so I knew he wanted to give me a chance. Uh, and then injuries happened, long spell out, 
So he was he was just wanting to give me that chance, really. So by the time that Luxembourg came, game came about, I wasn't playing. I was back training, obviously. So I, I, I think back, I, I, was, I was a million miles off it, really. Um, but just happy to get the first one out of the way and, and hoping that things could progress. Yeah. Um, and maybe there's an aspect to, you know, this, people ask me the question, you know, the highlight of my career playing for Wales. Of course it is. That's in hindsight as well, because at the time, um, although I treated, treated it maybe as a job and, you know, it's just another game to play for and prepare for, I think the, the fact that I wasn't playing for Swansea or whichever club at that time maybe took the enjoyment out of it a little bit. I'd have that little voice in the back of my mind thinking, do I deserve this? Or maybe worried about what other people are thinking, that you're, you're concerned about other people questioning he doesn't deserve to play for Wales, where in actual fact, I haven't got many players to pick from. So Chuck Tosh was doing the rounds, giving people an opportunity. Why, why didn't I deserve it? Um, that's maybe how I should have looked at it. Yeah. Um, but, but maybe that did take away uh, the, the pleasure at the time of representing Wales. Um, but but I certainly I certainly wasn't ready fitness wise. But it was happy just to get that first the first game that day against Luxembourg, not out of the way. That would that would be the wrong terminology. But because of what I've just explained, where I, where I was at mentally, just took the sting out of it a little bit. Did that, did that mean you sort of not couldn't take any enjoyment from it? But was that a part of it? Did you you know manage? Did you enjoy the experience of you know lining up and the anthems and all that sort of thing? Yeah, I came on at half time actually, so I would have been on the bench uh, preparing, singing the anthem. But you're, you're right, actually. I've, I've probably never really thought about it. I've never spoken about it in this in this manner. Um, maybe because I know some one or two fans, Welsh fans, <clears throat> that I've had discussions with, shall we say, afterwards. Um, a couple who are not shy to voice their opinions. Um, there was a little bit of judgment on my, you know, they, they, they remember after that Luxembourg, the fact that I didn't go over to the fans and clap it enough and little silly things like that. Yeah. Um, but you're right. I, I, I honestly think that at the time, mentally, maybe I wasn't, I just wasn't quite ready. And it, it was that little, that little voice did take the sting out of things. Um, you, you know, that, that I came on at halftime, uh, huge honour, of course. But I guess you want to, if it's going to be the pinnacle career, it would probably feel that little bit better if I played 25 games in a row for Swansea, that I played yeah. five, five to ten, uh, scored five or ten goals, um, and I was carrying that form onto the international scene. Whereas because of the route I took, maybe it just meant that I played a little bit safe. And that's something that I regret a little bit. I remember that Luxembourg, 45 minutes. I must have had loads of touches. Yeah. How many times I passed forward, I do not know. <laughs> and that probably means that Craig Bellamy probably screamed at me a handful of times. <laughs> um, but just just played safe. And that's probably one thing I look back and think, why, why would I not just be strong enough to, to, to take a bit more of a chance? Yeah. You, you mentioned two people I'm really interested in talking about there, actually. One of them being John Tashak and one of them being Craig Bellamy. I remember through that period so many different things and, and Bellamy coming out a couple of times and kind of chewing out the, the, the players and the manager and the fans in the press. And particularly one game, I think it was against Finland. Um, but also the, the, the era of Toshak in general um, is obviously at the minute seen as quite a positive thing. 
was there that feeling at the time? Because I've heard so many kind of wide-ranging stories about Toshak uh, and what yeah. he was like as a manager. Was was there that feeling that we're making progress here, or was it as I thought at the time? There was almost a, a bit of a gamble of he hasn't got much else he can do here than than blood the youngsters, you know? Well, I mean, because of his the 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 manner that he decided to go into the job and, and senior players decided to to step away from from international football it meant that that is all that, that was available to him um, and looking back incredible you know incredible foresight by him to to sort of see this way of, of going about things as the positive way to, to, to do things at the time you can't there's no way that anybody within that squad could have said that do you know what you know this this is the reason Tosh is doing this because in six years you know we're going to have uh, we're going to create history it just wasn't there at all we were aisle off it really um, I mean with re- respect to him actually the way he was going about things was in a positive manner he was at times he played three at the back and often he wanted to play out from the back so a goalkeeper starting possession it, it was he want, he knew what international football was you, you are not winning international football games without having good possession or being comfortable in possession. You, you cannot have that. It's just that probably at the time, Roberto had just come to Swansea, so hadn't had, uh, Swansea hadn't really took off in that way of playing. So at the time, probably nobody was used to pl- playing out from the back in, in that manner. So it was new to everyone, and everyone's probably thinking, nah, we don't play. nobody plays like this. Nobody in Britain plays like this. It's just probably it went hand in hand that Swansea had their success playing the way they did, and then the the the, the bulk of Swansea players that came into the squad could then help the Welsh the Welsh team. Yeah. I think it went hand in hand, you know. And, and Tosh deserves credit, but at the time, his, his his management style is very old school. It is very much this is what he did when he was a player, um, and and if it ain't broke, don't why fix it? You know, it worked for him. Uh, but it did. It did need that modernisation because players were just used to, uh, you know, everything being put on a plate for them at the clubs, and not that not being the case at international football. So um, the, the 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 change to modern football did need to happen as well. Have you got any uh, great stories about Tosh? Because I've heard, particularly the one where you went away to the Basque Country to play to play someone that that was just almost a bit of a free-for-all for him where he was very much comfortable in his surroundings and was encouraging everyone to enjoy themselves as well. I think Tosh is comfortable wherever he is. Um, I think he's... If he if he manages to get, get somebody in his company and they can talk about him, he is absolutely delighted. He's a, <laughs> he's a brilliant guy and he is great company. You know, we'd, we'd have... Um, I think who, whoever I'd be with, whether it was Sam Ricketts, Ashley Williams, you're almost waiting, we're having a coffee in a... In, a ca- in the cafe and you see him come and you want him to come because you know he's going to tell you good stories we're going to have a little laugh about it afterwards um, and uh, yeah he's, a, he's a, just a good guy I think you know he, he'd tell us stories about managing Real Madrid and you're thinking oh my god you know you forget sometimes and yeah. you go through the Real Madrid team and he'd, he'd talk about how Casillas how he gave him his debut and then he'd work his way through the back four and he'd talk about Redondo and he'd say, yeah, Redondo, centre midfield, big boy. <laughs> and then he'd talk about Samuel Eto and talk about giving him his debut. And then he'd go back to Redondo, big boy. <laughs> you think you've, you've, you've named him once, but it's just little things, you know. Sometimes team talks, he'd, he'd write down on the, 
on the board. He'd write down the team, and I think there'd be two Simon Davises in the team. <laughs> Just little things like that, and then you know, there's this com- almost a comic two minutes where he's trying to figure out who's missed out. He's asking Roy Evans. Who's not? Who, who's he not named? Just, just little things like that. But a, yeah. but a, a top guy. Uh, and, and Bellamy as well. There, um, obviously, as a Newcastle fan, like I said, he he was a hero for me at the time, playing for Newcastle and Wales. But I can understand him. Yeah, I could be in a difficult guy to play with at times. Was he that difficult? But it, I assume it came from a from a good place of wanting Wales to do well. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's spot on. Actually, his standards were higher than anyone I've ever come across and that sometimes boils down to him not being happy if anybody failed to get to those standards and not really not really for lack of quality because you know he'd play for whichever club he was at whether it was Newcastle Liverpool and he'd come away with the international football and he'd play with you know I'd put myself in the bracket of, of being someone who wasn't at, that, at the level he was used to you know if he's used to training with I don't know who's in the Liverpool team. Gerard would have been there. I don't yeah. know if Alonso was there at the time, but, you know. And then he's coming with me, but it, it was never a criticism of of a standard of play. You know, it wasn't as if he wanted me to be Stephen Gerrard and he couldn't understand why I couldn't play that pass. It was more attitude. Um, if your attitude was good, generally he was cool with you. Um, if he saw that you were lazy, he would be on you. If he saw that you were playing safe and you you weren't playing a forward pass to him or somebody else early to get him in a good position that's when he'd lose his head Um, so I I used to enjoy watching him train um, whether it was doing a warm up where you had to sprint from this going to that generally players will just coast through it he was on it every single sprint you know so so professional and a a brilliant player as well Uh, um, so I I enjoyed my time playing with him uh, and almost because of my age at the time, going into my mid-twenties, rumour with Ashley Williams at the time, same age, we'd want Craig Bellamy to shout at us almost because, you know, it wouldn't break us. We could see how it would be tough for young players to, to play with him. But we were a little bit more comfortable in that game. We'd just go back to our room and say, oh my God, I'd say to Ash, he's slaughtered you there. Or more often than not, it'd be the other way around, that he's hammered me. Um, but it was good it did come from a good place just just high high standards yeah so obviously after Tosh left Gary Speed came in um, and that transformed a lot of things both you know as you talked about like the needing the stuff that you had with your clubs that you didn't have with the country but obviously he, he kind of transformed results at the same time as well what was he like to, to play for well he was exactly what you would imagine him to be really um, and I had a long stint not, well, yeah it was quite a long stint away from the squad but I actually thought my international days were, were, were done uh, so I would have played who did I play Luxembourg Iceland Denmark I think three caps under Tosh maybe four uh, yeah there was Azerbaijan as well so four caps under Tosh and I thought I'm four and done this is, this is it now and got called into a squad under Gary Speed and um, I, I haven't played for probably five, four or five months. Uh, Norwich had just been promoted to the Premier League. Uh, I'd been on loan at Brentford and things didn't quite work out for one reason or another. Um, I wasn't thinking about international football. The Cup of Nations uh, over in Ireland happening in that summer. So Andrew Croft was in the squad. 
one promotion and, and Norwich paid for us to go to Las Vegas. So all expenses paid for, uh, flights, hotels, and we had a pot of, I think it was £25,000 to spend on pie. <laughs> so good pot. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I've hardly played and I was on the plane, so I was, I was happy, happy to be there. And Andrew Crofts, he was in the squad, you know, took it easy in Vegas, enjoyed, but took it easy. He knew international football games coming up. Russell Martin, same. He's in the Scotland squad. Took it easy. I just, I went for it. I attacked it. Enjoyed myself over in Vegas. Loved it. You know, thinking I've got a lovely little summer ahead of me now. I've still got a year left on my deal at Norwich. Probably need to find a new club, but we'll worry about that when I get back. And as soon as I landed back, and uh, I remember going for a game of golf on the, uh, the Ryder Cup course in Celtic Manor with my friend. Got to the ninth hole and I had about six or seven missed calls. Um, I think there was a couple off Oshan and a couple off my dad. Oshan knows my, my, my dad uh, from years ago. He phoned me and then tried to phone my dad. So basically the message was, you're in the Welsh squad. I think, what? It didn't, just didn't make sense to me. I was in South Wales. My passport, my football boots were in Norwich. Um, I, I just had to get them as soon as possible, basically. Meet up with... It ruined my round. I was actually playing pretty well for nine holes. <laughs> My mind was gone then, and mainly because I was happy to be in the squad, but I was looking at it from an angle of, I'm, I'm just going up to make up the numbers, you know, instead of playing golf on the Ryder Cup course, I'm going training now, and, you know, I'm not going to play. So anyway, got, got my head around everything, met up with the squad, met up with Gary Speed for the first time, saw exactly what he put in place firsthand, which was amazing, uh, and quickly realised shit, I'm, I'm going to be starting this first game. Because <laughs> the, the two games were in close proximity yeah. to each other. And to look after the squad, they were, they were going to play two different teams. So one team against Scotland, one team against Northern Ireland. And I was starting against Scotland thinking, I've not played for five months. I've just come back from Las Vegas. I'm a mess, basically. <laughs> and and that, that turned out to be my only start for Wales. And I played pretty well, actually, yeah. <laughs> First half, really happy. We took the lead, uh, Robert Ochoa scored. And then um, they took over a little bit in the second half. They had a good, decent decent team. Our, our team was quite an inexperienced one. And no surprises, I did hit a bit of a brick wall after an hour. <laughs> Fatigue set in. But I was, quite, I was proud of the way I played. Probably the best that I have played in the Welsh shirt. And it also meant that they didn't know much about me, Gary Speed, Raymond Verheyen. And... Um, it, it put me in their plans a little bit more and it meant that I came on in the next game uh, which was I could be a stronger team the likes of Bellas playing and I came on and got another cap under Gary Speed and uh, the next squad I was named in the squad I think it was against Australia um, and I think it was the week after I went to Inverness and my knee went again so I had an operation yeah. uh, so, so that was that was the end of it really and, and I remember being in the hospital bed and um, getting a phone call from Gary Speed and uh, it was just asking me what had happened, basically explained and I, I promise you I could hear the disappointment in his voice, not just because of the injury but from his selfish point of view for the squad moving forward um, that perhaps he saw a little place for me in there. Uh, I, I could sense the disappointment and uh, obviously what happened happened then in the following November, a couple of months later. And it wasn't actually, it's a long story now, it wasn't actually until, I think, last month when I recorded my podcast with Oshan, 
that we were talking about this and you know I was explaining how I knew my place within the squad and um, that if there was injuries I'd maybe be a late call up and Osham kind of said well actually uh, after those games that you played there was a higher the disappointment in Gary's voice would have been because he, he almost held you in higher regard if you, if you had a spell of playing for a club there was actually a position to be filled there you know deep midfield player Crofty had a bash there Joe Allen hadn't quite come onto the scene. Uh, although, yeah, Joe would have been playing for Swansea at the time, but there, there was an opening for, for a genuine holder. And Gary had me, um, you know, sort of in the mix for that. So that that was nice to hear, you know. Yeah. Um, but huge tragedy. And uh, I said to Oshin at the time, what happened? I carried it in that rehab. Almost every time I went on a run um, to get myself back fit, he was just. I didn't know him that well. I was in a handful of squads with him, but I don't know. It was, it was it was like he was in my mind, just thinking about what had happened and just trying to get fit and using that as a motivation almost. And um, what last one on, on Gary? What do you, what effect do you think it had on the on the squad overall? And and obviously that was something that drove them on to to part to, to qualify for Euro two thousand sixteen. But what effect do you, especially on that next campaign for the Brazil campaign? Yeah, I guess there was a mixture. Uh, we, we we have the benefit of hindsight now to know the success that happened, and of course it would have been a driving factor. But but I think it I think it shattered them actually, um, because it was things were progressing really nicely. Uh, that came to a halt straight away, and results tailed off again. And the Coleman to to, to start with, um, it was a huge blow and unprecedented situation for players for for Chris Coleman to come into. Um, how do you prepare for for something like that? You know, hugely, hugely damaging. And I think Chris Coleman, one of his major skills, is then not to take the the team forward and progress and take all the all the plaudits. I think within the dressing room, there always would have been that message of doing it for speedo, as as he, as he would call him. Um, so they would have used that as a driving driving force. But it would have took a long time to get over it because not just the training. The training that changed and the setup that changed uh, drastically. He just bought a human side to it. You know, he, he would he would arrange these barbecues for the players to have with their families um, to tr- really try and create that bond on the international scene. Um, so, yeah, huge, hugely damaging. Uh, I, I I just remember preparing for that Scotland game uh, and for the for the Ireland game being over there and. and Playing with him, he was my midfield partner. Because of numbers or a couple of players missing, he joined in training. So I'd be in the middle of the pack with him for for, for one set. I think I was against him for one as well, just absolutely chasing shadows. <laughs> However old he was at the time, uh, you know the class that he had as a player was was certainly still evident. Um, wanted to ask you a little bit about because you mentioned Austin Roberts there and and his role in almost like the glue of what's happening with. Um, FAW at the minute what's your experience with with him and um, it sounds like the relationship with the family goes back a little bit as well yeah it does he he lived across the road from us the the place I grew up and um, my dad and 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 Oshan were were close I don't think they were were best friends or anything but they knew each other they'd have a pint together Um, and I remember they'd go to each other's houses sometimes and I remember he was like the coach he was the um, director on, on Anglesey or head of football 
uh, over in Anglesey. So kind of a big wig, a big fish in a small pond, if you like, at that time. And, uh, you know, I, I would have been a young kid, so, you know, he'd come with advice and he'd say, you know, you do doing keep up with that ball, well, come, 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 come and see me when you can do 10 keep uppies with a tennis ball. Things like that. So then you'd go in the garden and practice those. And then the next experience with Osh was he was the Port Maddox assistant manager when I, when I went there as a 15-year-old. Um, and he hardly played me, actually. So <laughs> I, I carried that anger with me for the rest of my career. Uh, he, he's, been, he's been brilliant. You know, he's, he's obviously more than just a coach or assistant manager for a spell and the Coleman in the, in, with, the, with the senior team. He's everything behind the scenes then with, with the young teams as, as the technical director. He's, he's hugely vital. Whether he was to stay on as, as part of Ryan Giggs' staff or not, um, that job would remain. And, and just making sure that all different age groups, that everyone plays in the same manner, uh, similar type of football that there's an identity still to Welsh football you know he's a in terms of being a student and going over to countries like Belgium and learning from those countries what are they doing um, he's, he's been he's been excellent moving just following the campaign through the Owen and everything that happened in the build up to Euro 16 um, obviously there'd been a little bit of a gap between your involvement with the squad and and, and that phase um, but ha- emotionally that must have been quite interesting as someone who knew those players so well and knew, and knew the setup to watch that development yeah it was amazing but I saw I saw it coming uh, I really did and, and I, one sense of, um, thing that I am proud of is seven caps for Wales but under three managers so under Toshak yeah uh, right, uh, Gary Speed and Chris Coleman. So I had the one cap and the and the Chris Coleman, and so I was I was involved in the squad in and out up until the end of the previous campaign. So wasn't in the squad for the Andorra game, which was the the first one. Uh, but but I was in the my last one was travelling to Holland for the friendly um, before. Would that have been the World Cup? Yeah. I think there would have been a World Cup. So their last game uh, in the squad didn't come on. Uh, Coleman I remember getting a message of him afterwards big man uh, I'm so sorry that you didn't get on uh, but you know really really um, happy with your involvement the way that you train attitude wise little things like that mean a lot I think I've still got the message um, so th- that was you know he's a classy guy but I could see I could see something happening I really could um, and, and that helped me in retirement really Stepping into the media, so that last year of my contract um, with Falkirk, where I got injured, would have been the last remaining games of that campaign. And I thought to myself, I'm not going to France as a player. How can I get there? And I thought, if I stay with Falkirk now for the remainder of this season, don't get my foot in the door with the media, I'm not going. So it almost made it easier for me to retire, to try and worm my way in uh, one way or the other use the fact that I was close with, with some of the players um, to make sure that I, that, I, that I could get over there because, you know, I would say to people, it wasn't just the case of wanting to retire to, to work in the media. I, I saw this championship as, I think, where's it, it going to get there? Um, so I was lucky enough to, to, to work on, on some of the games in the qualifying group and uh, obviously the rest is history. Yeah. Were there any other points in the build-up to that where you thought, like you said, you could see it coming? Were there any other times where you thought, 
this is starting to happen or was that the first time where it all sort of clicked yeah probably within within that really um, you know obviously the good spell under Gary Speed where there was good results climbing up the, the rankings um, but that was the campaign even even yeah. the Holland game previously uh, the last friendly it's not as if yeah, going in confident of course but you need so many things to go your way really in terms of that moment, momentum and I, I think the Andorra one I remember um, I just signed for Falkirk and hadn't played in a long time so, so I've missed I've been training pre-season with Hibs they wanted me to play games so I played for the Falkirk reserves before getting a first team game and I remember being on the bus back from St Johnston for this reserve game and being on Twitter and seeing the feed for this Andorra game so no absolute nervous wreck um, and then the, was it the Bosnia game the second yeah what, I remember watching that at home so I had my spot in the house same, same chair to watch the Wales game the third game then I was actually travelling back uh, I think the third one was against Cyprus travelling back from Scotland to Wales um, must have had a couple of days off and I stopped off on the way um, in, in Joe Allen's house uh, Joe was living on the outskirts of Chester at the time yeah. stopped off to watch that Cyprus game because he was suspended um, so watch that so I've, I've got various little stories about the, all of the qualifying games before I eventually managed to get myself in um, <laughs> for, for what would have been my first game I know I went over to went out to Israel as part of the commentary team for the radio perhaps I was involved in one before that um, but by that time you know the team was they, they made a good start haven't they um, we, we thought something could happen I definitely thought that and that Israel one I think was the the, the important one the one the performance that you, you yeah. sit back and think bloody hell to go there and win 3-0 when they were top of the group at the time um, that's when the excitement really started to, to come in yeah no I, I think that was the one where I remember watching that in a pub in Cardiff and it was one of those ones where the first goal went in, it like a little yeah. header off the underside of the bar, and everyone around. There was a bit of a celebration, obviously, but it was just all of a sudden like nerve setting. And then the second half just yeah. blew them away. And it was what I remember looking across the like the pub at a few of my mates, thinking, "Shit, this is this is happening!" Like you know, yeah. start booking your flights or whatever else. Like it was that was a, that was an amazing day. That might be a good opportunity to talk a bit more about your experience at Euro 16 and and being sort of in in this sort of middle ground almost of not there quite as a fan obviously not there as a player and how how that was different being part of the media yeah it was a, it was it was brilliant of course it was what a, what a what a treat what a, an honor to be there to be paid you know to be working there it was hard work at times, you know. Is it is it hard work in comparison to some jobs? No, um, but it was long hours, and we you know we we did our fair share of travelling. But it was a huge honour to be to be out there. It wasn't quite. I, I, I speak to some of the guys who, was, who I was there with as part of the media. They they've gone about how it's just this incredible, oh, the best five weeks of our lives. I didn't quite see it that way. The same as fans, really, and, and, and I'm not sure why. It's, it's a lot of time away from away from your family with guys who you know your work colleagues and some friends. Um, but sometimes I, I like to take myself away from the fire and, and step away. Sometimes you just need to clear your head. 
because it's not as if you're there with your family or you're there with your closest friends. Um, but it was it was just amazing. It just kept on building. And I, I I do think that sometimes people think of me, whether I'm speaking before a game, as uh, he, he doesn't want to put his neck on the block or, or head on the block and, and say that Wales are going to lose. He always seems to say they're going to win. Or, but I'd always have a, a reason why. And it didn't, obviously it boils down to knowing the players. Mm-hmm. And I genuinely thought it. If, if we went into a game and I thought we're not going to win, we're not going to pick up a good result, I would say it. But during that tournament, genuinely, just every game where people seemed concerned and nervous, whether it was the Russia game, the Slovakia game, the first one, especially after that friendly defeat against Sweden, losing yeah. 3-0, and all of a sudden, I promise you, everyone I was working with, they, they'd probably deny it now. I remember hearing them, you know, the negativity, um, how it's not, we're not going to do anything in the competition, and thinking, no, this this bunch of players, when they go, when the backs are against the wall and they have to produce, they produce. The Sweden game was nothing. We're not quite good enough as a team to perform in friendlies. Yeah. You know, to, to win games where you can take your foot off the gas if you like. Um, so just to see the momentum building throughout was, was amazing, really. Uh, certainly because of a relationship with, with some of the players. Um, looking at the, at the current squad, um, how do you think Giggs is going to do as, a, as, the, as the current manager? And, and would he have been your choice? Were you in charge of picking? Um, I mean, the options weren't... It's not as if we had a huge amount of options. Yeah. And from the options, I think initially, no. Um, probably from, you know, like fans seeing clips of team talks when he was the Man United yeah. manager for that short spell and thinking, I'm not sure about this in terms of the comparison between if that's how Giggs speaks in front of a group and Coleman, that being his greatest strength, um, you know, for, for that last message before going out on the pitch, you know, you put your tactics on board and you, you make sure the players know and aware of their jobs. But sometimes you need that last message for it to mean something. And that was Coleman's skill. But I think as, as it's gone on, that first press conference seemed nervous. By the second camp, I thought, I like this now. I think I like the way he's talking. Um, different to Coleman and he has to be uh, just I think arrogance is the wrong word I mean arrogance in a positive way yeah. from what he's achieved as a, as, a, as a player he's carrying those standards in now as a manager and maybe he, he can take us onto the next level never mind not being quite as, as good as, as a previous one he could take us to the next level because his standards are higher than anybody else that we've had um, so I'm I'm positive for the future. The 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 bigger known is we look back to that Toshak era, giving young players a chance. Um, it's that same mould now. Although I would stand up performance, I've still got a handful of years left in them. Not too many, only a couple of campaigns. So what's happening next? Um, but I guess at the moment, gigs won't worry too much about that. Yeah. You just need to have a little bit of freshness. Is there one or two of these young players who can? Settle into the team, not just into the squad. Is there one or two who can really kick on? Whether that's a Mepham at Brentford, does he have a good season at Brentford and then moves on to the Premier League um, and then he sets himself in that team? Is it Ampadu, who actually, even at his age, who looks outstanding, yeah, I agree. does he you know, find himself in the Wales team? Brooks going to Bournemouth. We need just one or two just to keep freshening things up. Uh, to make sure that, that there's a successful period on the horizon. No, I agree. I agree. 
Which of the young players are you most excited by? Oh. Yeah, it's it's, an, it's him. It's not it's a no brainer. Zampadu. Yeah. Um, I I know that is probably from us. I, I knew about him playing at Exeter. One of my best friends um, from football. He's a coach at Norwich now, but he played at Exeter, so he knew the coaching staff. And he was telling me, "This boy, he's outstanding." Uh, and then speaking to lads from the Welsh setup, when I, I'm not sure if it was before the Euros. That they went to Portugal. I don't. Know. I think that yeah, maybe was, was his first that. taste. He was yeah. part of that training squad in Portugal. Yeah, and they came back from that, looking at each other, thinking, "Who is this lad?" You know that not just the way he plays, and I think we're aware now, having seen him, the way he talks on the pitch. Young players these days, not many of them talk. You know, you can you can be you can tell them talk. It's going to help you as a player if you can talk to the player in front of you. That is going to save you a lot of work. So if you're a centre half, just telling the centre midfielder in front of you to step left or step right is going to make your job easier. And he does that. And they were saying how he was telling Ashley Williams where to go. Um, David Edwards has said that he's retired since because one, he didn't want to stand in the way of these young young guys and uh, block their way through. And two, Ampadu was telling him, I don't know if it was the France or Panama game, he was telling him where to be. And Dave, as an experienced player, was looking out thinking, do you know what, he's actually right. <laughs> I, I, actually, I should be there. Um, so he, he excites me very much. wanted to ask a little bit about your broadcasting. I mean, it, you, it's looking from the outside in, it seemed to be a very kind of measured, really quite shrewd move, your timing in terms of, you know, walking away from a contract at Falkirk and, and clearly leveraging your, your Welsh language skills and, and moving into uh, mostly with S4C. But how did that actually develop for you and, and what were the hurdles you had to overcome moving in that direction? Uh, not not too many hurdles really, and the, you know the truth is there's not many of us. There's mm-hmm. not many Welsh speaking ex footballers. It's ju- it, it was about at the time it was getting my foot in the door and wanting a little bit of a job to keep me ticking over after a time and keep my mind occupied. Um, and it's it's probably more of a hurdle now that I've done that for three years or so, and I'm thinking where next because mm-hmm. I can't earn a, a long term living, a decent living as a Welsh football pundit in Welsh. So I haven't had a good enough career and you know, in terms of my profile to be a pundit in English, you know, apart from bits and bobs for Radio Wales. So it's a difficult one now more than at the, at the beginning because I, I want to keep progressing. I don't want to keep doing what I'm doing. Um, so how do, how do I go about that is, is the big question really. And so I, I, I would like to become a presenter, uh, but it stands opportunities, taking those opportunities when they come. Um, so it's 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 good. I, I mean, I, I understand. You know, social media is such a huge tool these days, and I know that if you, if you let people know that you're here, you're there, you're doing this, you're doing that, people think you're busy. People think people think I'm a millionaire from working within the media in Wales. You know, they they're so far off. There's not, there's not much money at all. So you you know you're scrambling about just trying to keep busy to try and keep to try and do something that leads to something else. It's more of a long-term vision that, I, that I'm starting to try to have, really. Um, you know, Instagram is a good example. It, it's, it, it's not that it's false. It's just you're just showing someone five seconds of your day, a false tool, if you like. You get people jealous, or, you know, you're traveling here, there, and everywhere. Sometimes they don't see the, 
what it takes to get there, the amount of traveling, that's not for everybody. Um, but unfortunately, Wales, it's something that I have to do. Yeah. Uh, and, and I'm sure we'll, do, you know, we'll touch on little things like the podcast. The reason I'm doing it, there's no money to be made. You guys know. <laughs> the podcasting, uh, it's another example. People see me doing a podcast with this, this player or this guy and think that that's leading to millions of, or loads of money. And it's not the case. It's just trying to do something that can help me a little bit further down the line, if yeah. that makes sense. How is the podcast doing in general? Like we, we are we are avid listeners, and it's like it's great hearing you. Obviously, with certain players, especially talk about you know shared experiences and stuff like that. Do, do you enjoy doing that? No, I, love, I really enjoy it. Really enjoy it. The hardest part, I'm sure you guys will know as well, is nailing people down, getting people <laughs> to do it. First of all, not many people are aware what a podcast is. Um, so, two to get them to to give you their time. Really, that's that's the big factor. I, I can't. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm preaching to the choir here. You guys know it's yeah. not as if we, we we can say, oh, "Will you do this podcast for me? I'll give you a hundred quid." You know, it's so that's the hardest part. But I'm I'm really enjoying it. It's it's improving my skills. Uh, what I tell people when I retired, I was asked by Radio Wales to do an interview with Joe Allen, who's one of my closest mates, and it was a very very short interview, four or five questions. And I remember I'd written down these questions on an A4 piece of paper, more than one page, by the way, on A4 pad of paper. Long-winded questions, and I was trying to remember the questions. And I had to have the notepad down by my feet, trying to look down to see what the next question is. And if you would have asked me two minutes after, or five minutes after the interview, what had Joe said in his answers? I didn't have a clue. I didn't listen to a word he said. So that's the example of thinking, right, how, how do I improve that? If I want to be a presenter... You have to be able to speak to people. You need to be able to listen to people, hold a conversation. So then from getting into the podcast world from a listening standpoint and thinking, oh, this intrigues me, this platform. How would I do it? How would I go about it? What would what setup would I go? Would it be me and a guest, me and a regular guest interviewing someone or just three same, same ones every time? And obviously I've stumbled upon what I'm doing now, one myself and a guest just to improve improve that aspect, really. How do I talk to people? No script, hold a conversation. Um, yeah, I'm really, really enjoying it. Who's been the most fun to interview? Who was that's perhaps unexpectedly fun? Um, I've enjoyed I've enjoyed them all, of course, mm-hmm. because especially at the moment, mainly it's people that I know. Mm-hmm. It's contacts that I know. Um, I'll run out of them one day, so you, you, know, you branch out, so... There's someone like Darren Huckabee who I didn't know, mm-hmm. uh, hadn't met him until the night the night before. So maybe that one is a little bit too structured for my liking. I was hungover when I did it as well. <laughs> we were out together with a friend of ours the night before, so we were both a little bit hungover. That didn't help. Very unprofessional, but that was a little bit too structured for what I'm after. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, 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 what I say to them now is, I just want a conversation. I don't want it to be an interview I want you to feel comfortable uh, we might end up talking about I, I don't know dog kennels it might be that we're talking about you know <laughs> coffee I don't know it could be anything and I like that uh, and some people from the media might then look at that and think why hasn't he asked this guy this question I'm not a journalist I'm not there to ask and, and this is one thing I say to every guest before we start if you say something you think do you know what that's going to create the wrong type of headline 
I'm not here for a line. I'll take it out. Yeah. I don't want to take anything out, but I'm, I'm, no problem at all. Uh, so I've enjoyed them all. You know, sitting on the fence with that one. <laughs> the one that stood out at the time was Ferry Boulder. Right. Um, because going into it, and even during, I wasn't sure, one, his Dutch accent, would people understand mm-hmm. it? Um, to what he's like as a, you know, obviously I know him as a guy, but on record, uh, recording, and I listened back to that. I had a drive to London straight away after. I listened back to it straight away and I thought, ah, oh, that is a good one. Yeah. yeah. But the unfortunate thing is, the only people initially who listen to that is Swansea fans. But you think, oh, I'd love for more people to be, just even if you've never heard of the guy. Um, so I enjoyed that. Chris Gunter was good. Um, I've got one coming out today, actually. Today and tomorrow, another two-part. I like guns with Neil Taylor. Oh, uh, so, again, two good talkers. That's why I've had to split them into two. They talk so much nonsense that <laughs> um, I've had to break it up. So, yeah, all, all, all good. All good. Um, the last thing I wanted to ask, we will let you go and enjoy the rest of your afternoon. Um, I saw yesterday you tweeted about uh, the TNS game not getting any coverage on on Welsh national media um, and we often talk about you know what needs to be done to improve Welsh league football and what is one of those things that you think the biggest thing that Welsh football needs to do to a attract a wider audience but also improve the quality because I mean all of those teams who've played European games now have, have got knocked out um, yeah. what do you think needs to change it's a difficult one isn't it you, you're referring back to that, that tweet yesterday it's an interesting one I don't I don't like being controversial on Twitter because that's not my personality most of the things I put on there is to amuse myself, um, is to take a piss out of someone and, you know, I'll have a little chuckle by myself. Nothing is too serious. So when I put that on and then I noticed the replies to the initial message by Andrew Howard from guys who I know from the BBC and they were saying, well, actually, we put it on last night's news and it was on the radio. I, I commentated on the game. I was there yeah. on behalf of the BBC. So obviously there was coverage. So, so you end up thinking, who's right here? You know, is it the guys from the BBC were saying, actually, it's been given the courage. And I thought, well, no, you know, it's, it's only the morning before. We're not expecting for everybody to talk about this TNS game that ultimately they lost for weeks on end. Yeah. But you think, you've done it the night before, what's wrong with the morning before as well? You know, just, just it helps it helps your product. It's something for you to, to speak about. It's our national, uh, national league. We wouldn't have a Wales international team if it wasn't for this league. Yeah. You know, so at least give it a little bit of coverage or a little bit more. In terms of the standard, it's hard. Personally, without knowing the ins and outs of pros and cons, summer football, I'd change it. Why not? Um, I think a barrier is that we're so close to England um, that I think there's a concern that players would just play 12 months of the year. They'd play for an English team and then come the summer, just jump in the Welsh league. Uh, that's a concern. But I, I do think that would help. I, I genuinely do. I've, I've played for teams, a handful of team, uh, appearances in Europe, and you're coming up against those who play summer football. Oh my God, it's another level. You know, play for Hibs against Malmo, um, and they beat us 2 0. I played in that game 2 0 away, and they were on a different level. They were better players than us. Yeah. You know, there's that. But they were also so much fitter. Um, it was scary they beat us 7-0 in the second leg and thank god I was dropped I was on the bench <laughs> um, but um, yeah so I think what the negatives are every, almost every team that a Welsh Premier team will face in Europe will be better standard wise so how do you counter that by being fitter 
on that particular occasion on those two games so I think summer football would be a good plus uh, personally I, I totally agree we've talked yep. about this before I, mean, I, I very much agree um, well thank you very much for your time we, we really appreciate it and uh, thanks for, for coming and chatting to us no problem at all hopefully you can uh, edit it nicely with all the crackling <laughs> sure no, I've enjoyed it thank you very much nice one guys yeah thank you very much for your time really appreciate it Well, thank you very much to Owen for that. I think that was a very interesting, wide-ranging conversation. It was. I mean, he's another example of someone who's been incredibly honest and open with us in our discussions, and I'm very grateful for that. And and I love the fact that he, he clearly takes what he does seriously without taking kind of himself and life seriously. It's Absolutely. a really nice balance he's, he's got in his approach to things. Um, really uh, lovely chatting about his experiences with different players with different managers and the the kind of personal journey that he went on uh, it was just a fascinating hour wasn't it it really was like everyone we've spoken to so far we've talked about them being generous with their time and and, and Owen was no exception to that um a very interesting chat I especially enjoyed his story of Big Tosh talking about uh, the Real Madrid days and you do forget sometimes like he gave Ilka Casillas his debut. Like that's crazy, isn't it? Um, but yeah, his time involved in that was really interesting. But also how honest he was about you know talking about his injuries and mm. basically trying to keep getting contracts. It always upsets me a little bit as well. Like with, with a few of the people we've chatted to, when you when he says like I'm 33 now and he makes it seem like that's the end of the world and you've achieved all of these things in your sporting career and I'm 33 and I once scored five goals in a five-a-side game. That's it. Which we keep hearing about. Which I, yeah, on a regular basis. I don't know if I'll tell you the story, listeners. <laughs> um, yeah, so, uh, but yeah, what, what a great guy. Very grateful for his time. If you have enjoyed our podcast with Owain, please go back and listen to our other Owain podcast, uh, this time uh, with Owain Vaughan Williams, who talked about Euro 2016. He talked about his career in general, his move over to America. Um, but the the stories he told us about Euro 2016 were fascinating, so please listen to that. We do have more uh, summer specials coming up. We have two more interviews which will be released to you soon, one of which is with the absolutely amazingly lovely Jess Fishlock. Um, that podcast will be going out in the build-up to the England game. Again, she was incredibly generous with her time, so we're grateful for, for what she's done for us. And we have one final surprise guest uh, to be recorded in the coming days so please keep an eye out for for the two upcoming summer specials thank you very much for listening if you want to keep in touch with us please do follow us on twitter at coleman's underscore dream or keep an eye out for the blogs that we post online and our address for that is coleman'sdream.wordpress.com we would also be very grateful to anyone who would subscribe to us on itunes If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, please give us a five-star review on iTunes. And if you are so inclined, please write something positive for us on there as well. Again, thank you very much for listening.